This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So what exactly is Twitter? Obviously, it's a social media site. But now that Elon Musk is going to pay $44 billion, and those are U.S. dollars, way more than anyone else thought the company was worth, it makes sense to step back and look at the company's business. So I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I take a look at the deal through an economic lens. Twitter came into existence in 2006 with a really simple idea. You could type 140 characters, basically the length of a text message, and send it to the internet so anyone can see. In the first three months of the year, the company said it averaged 229 million daily users, a huge number. At the same time, it struggled, including posting $128 million operating loss in the first three months of this year. And many years during the past decade, it did not post an annual profit. So to make sense of Twitter and its business model, I turned to Courtney Raj, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, a Waterloo, Ontario-based think tank, and Vaz Bednar, Executive Director of the Masters of Public Policy and Digital Society Program at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. Two important facts to start. Musk, he's 50 years old and he's considered the world's richest person, worth an estimated $264 billion. And with regard to buying Twitter, he said, I don't care at all about the economics. It's not about money. So maybe there's no reason to look at the business case for this company at all. But $44 billion is still a lot of money, even for the world's richest person. I mean, maybe he has to make money off of it, but I'm not entirely sure that that is the goal. I mean, you see a lot of wealthy people buying up newspapers in order to have influence, not necessarily to make a profit. And I do think that in the news business, there is some tension between a profit-driven objective versus a public interest objective. Now, I don't think that Musk has a public interest objective in mind, although he might think that he does, given his, uh, you know, free speech maximalist um, ideas. That's Courtney Raj of the Center for International Governance Innovation. It's pretty interesting that he paid so many billions of dollars more than it's worth. And, uh, you know, really an unparalleled amount, I think, to pay for that type of entity. And if you compare it to a media outlet, you know, single media outlet, certainly more than the vast majority of news media deals in the world. But again, it's not new for billionaires or very wealthy people to buy up news media or or media as a way to have some influence over the public sphere. I mean, this this is very common throughout the world and across history. But I don't think we should be surprised by that. But I do think I mean, it does make us wonder how is he going to monetize and how much pressure does he feel to do that? And what is his timeline? Because if you look at some of his other businesses, you know, they weren't necessarily profitable at the beginning. Let's take Tesla, for example. It has completely overtaken the market and I think setting a standard for electric vehicles and infrastructure and all of this in a way that, again, I think if we think about where he takes Twitter, he might be taking it somewhere that we're not thinking about, right? Here's what we do know. 
advertising accounted for $1.1 billion of Twitter's $1.2 billion total revenue in the first three months of this year. So pretty much all of it. And the tension it faces is between adding users so that more eyeballs see more ads and it makes more money and kicking people off the site who hurl vile insults or spread conspiracy theories that aren't true or other demonstrably false information. It kicked former U.S. President Donald Trump off the site in January of 2021. And some people said this made discourse a little bit better on the site. Obviously, this was divisive, though. Musk has said he believes in free speech, that if it's legal, it's fair game. So I asked Vaz Bednar what she thinks about this. You know, when you think about something like the profitability of Twitter or what he's going to monetize, many people have written about this. If it's fundamentally an advertising-based model, you're going to need to ensure some kind of health and vitality of that conversation. Because if it's just evolving into hate speech, racist speech, you know, threats, violent images, images of child pornography, then you're not going to earn advertiser dollars because no one's going to want to be there. And that's a business decision, right? And if he's making the calculus that a business, a better business decision is to privilege volume over quality, you have to ask to what end? Because again, it's not just the activity of posting, it's the dollars people are either going to put in from campaigns or from their pocket to amplify those perspectives. And now we have an opportunity to see more experimentation and dialogue with different monetization models. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we'll move away from you know the surveillance economy that we've seen, or maybe we're just going to be throwing spaghetti at the wall and trying to kind of microcharge people for their activity. Who knows? As a journalist, I'm really intrigued by this deal because so many newspapers like Twitter tried to develop an advertising-based business model, but they've never achieved the scale of users that Twitter has. And Twitter's a little different because it's user-generated content. Instead of employing a bunch of journalists, it has a bunch of people who open accounts and post stuff for free. And so the site is grappling with questions like how to treat autocratic dictators who send out tweets. For a while, it struggled with what to do about former U.S. President Trump because he had 88 million followers when he was banned in January of 2021. I asked Raj about this, and she explained, as people probably realize already, this is a really divisive issue. Some people look at that and say, hey, how can a private platform silence these world leaders, especially elected leaders? We saw, for example, uh, Angela Merkel in Germany, in Mexico, the president there, in uh, Poland, the prime minister, lots of reactions against Twitter's deplatforming of President Trump and kind of efforts to require that platforms not deplatform people without either contravening some sort of law or with greater oversight. And, you know, I think you saw a lot of consternation about the fact that you could have this private platform make that decision. On the other hand, there was also consternation among a large portion of people about the fact that world leaders like President Trump were given leeway and more lax enforcement of rules on these social media platforms so that they were allowed to harass and spread disinformation, et cetera. I mean, there were several studies that showed a decline in the spread of, of misinformation in the wake of President Trump's deplatforming. So I think that there's tension between these two things. On the one hand, I look at this, I, I actually wrote a piece that said, you know, platforms should be deplatforming more world leaders because world leaders already have access to the public sphere. 
They can call a press conference. They can write an op-ed that will be published in any newspaper that they send it to. They can go to any other platform and by definition of their being a leader in a given country or context, they will draw people to that. So the idea that we should somehow give them greater latitude to you know, harass or, or spread virulent information online to me just seems wrongheaded. But I think that Musk's perspective seems to be that, you know, everyone should be allowed to say everything online. But that disregards the fact that, for example, when President Trump tweeted at specific reporters and and it would lead to significant amounts of harassment online. And so that then has a silencing impact. When you have, you know, black women who are trying to speak out or or just to express themselves online and then get all sorts of vitriol. I mean, last week I tweeted something that someone else had written in the New York Times about Russia. And my timeline for the past two days has been filled with pictures of Nazis and Hitler and this really vitriol. So, you know, it can have this silencing impact when one person's so-called free speech ends up launching coordinated disinformation or harassment campaigns against others. We've seen this in the case of my friend and, and you know, renowned journalist Maria Ressa and, and, and the Philippines, Rana Ayub in India, where, you know, the attempts to silence them on social media could be perceived as, you know, free speech on one side, but is in fact censoring on the other side. What this means is that there's no natural state of equilibrium. Twitter is going to have to figure this out. And here's something else. Banks are providing about $22.5 billion in financing for Musk's buyout at interest rates of between 4 and 10%. And that means Musk may feel some pressure to make sure this company makes money so it can pay down that debt. But on the other hand, he's proposing to buy all the shares and take Twitter private. And it's the second largest privatization in U.S. history, by the way. And that means Musk won't face the pressures that Twitter faced as a public company you know, to meet Wall Street analysts' expectations, to generate ever higher returns for investors, that kind of thing. Yes, the privatization of a public company does change things because it means that they're subject to different types of scrutiny and reporting. But there's also potentially greater ability to experiment and not be bound by the same fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. So, you know, if Musk decides that he really wants to maximize free speech by not adhering to national laws that restrict it, for example, in Vietnam or the new laws in Pakistan or India, you know, he could potentially resist that because he doesn't maybe care about profit. I think that's probably unlikely, but theoretically possible. Similarly, you know, he could decide, okay, we are going to open up Twitter's black box algorithm. And maybe he actually creates a whole different type of company by doing that, you know, more like WordPress or something where, you know, you can have developers and others create their own applications and plugins and that sort of things that build on the platform. So I think there's more potential experimentation that's possible. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. So much of the commentary about this deal has been about what Twitter actually is, how it's not just about tweets. You can also use it to find people. You can use it to send them messages. You can check out who's in people's networks based on what Twitter accounts they follow or what Twitter accounts they interact with. You can go down a rabbit hole exploring all the different microservices that Twitter is. Both my guests suggested there could be creative ways to think about Twitter's assets. You hear Vaz talking about this. I 
think it's worth considering Musk's holdings as ultimately repackaged as a data company, right? We know he doesn't officially spend any money on advertising for Tesla. Well, what kind of advertising is this Twitter takeover? He said he wants to authenticate all humans on the platform. That sounds to me like, you know, a form of digital ID that proves who I am with my Twitter account. What if that's connected to my use of solar panels or my interaction with my Tesla vehicle? She told me there's a growing area of research in how tech companies are merging data sets for new purposes, like how Amazon may be using its massive data to figure out what television shows to make. Back to being on my armchair, the competition policy research that I do. So increasingly, I myself and others are growing interested in like, what are the risks, but also opportunities for companies that can integrate data sets across different verticals that were previously seen as very uh, otherwise divergent. And you're starting to see this influence, potentially influence uh, cultural content creation, platforms like Netflix, platforms like Amazon. I think that's actually the right lens to think about the Twitter takeover. If Musk really were primarily interested in the data, I think it would be kind of an ironic twist because so much of the commentary has been around whether Musk who made electric vehicles cool, you know, made space travel possible, could apply his genius to Twitter and make discourse on the internet civil, more meaningful, productive. Because Twitter more and more is seen as whatever the opposite of polite, civil, and nuanced is. From a number of quote-unquote users' perspective, I think Twitter can seem so much larger than it is because, you know, a user is somebody that has a has a platform, and then we start to look at who logs on, and then we look at who posts and how frequently. So I also think there's something about the pandemic that has sort of shoved us inside and with our phones more and on our computers um, that might have temporarily inflated the role of Twitter in terms of setting the terms of debate. And I, I have to wonder whether this is really more of Mm, it feels like a tool that's important in this moment. But the more you and I get to participate in capital R, capital W, the real world, the less we might be scrolling and retweeting and sort of uh, liking, or I call it harding, harding things online. It's possible that Twitter may feel more important because we've all been cooped up for so long with the pandemic. If you look at the first year of the pandemic, say March 2020 to February 2021, Twitter's share price basically tripled from about 24 bucks per share to 77 bucks. And its current management has said it wants to reach more than 300 million daily users by 2023. Ambitious goals, but this may not tell the whole story. I guess my final thought is other people, other firms have looked at purchasing Twitter in the past, right? Apparently, Facebook founder Zuckerberg tried to buy Twitter uh, two times. Um, back in 2016, bids were considered from, from Google, Apple, Disney, Salesforce, maybe others. This is just what I've read. Worth, again, back to those thought experiments, why, why they walked away, but also why Musk didn't. And maybe he's just a playful billionaire who wants to take risks and challenge himself. It'll be interesting to see where this goes. It is my only form of social media, and I'm really hoping hoping it doesn't get ruined because that's how I participate in a lot of conversations and meet people. So my fingers are crossed. 
Clearly, with hundreds of millions of users, a lot of people are invested in this site, and there's billions of dollars at stake in this deal. Musk's offer is $54 per share, and obviously, no one knows whether he can do something incredible or not. So I'll end this episode with an excerpt of the letter he wrote to Twitter's board. He wrote, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. And I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. He then goes on to explain the fine print of his purchase offer. And I'll skip to his last line. Twitter has extraordinary potential. I will unlock it. So I'll leave you with that as a final thought. That's it for our show this week. Thank you for listening. And thank you to my guests. Courtney Raj is a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. And Vaz Bednar is executive director of the Masters of Public Policy and Digital Society program at McMaster University. This episode would not have been possible without Bryce Hall, who composed and performed the original music and produced the show. Nor would it have been possible without Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid, who provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Down to Business. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.